Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you, the DU Podcast. Hey, y'all. Welcome to the show. It's Mallory Murphy. I'm here with co-host Katie Burke. How are you today, Katie? I'm good, Mallory. How are you? Doing great. And today we are sitting in for Chris and Mike, and we're going to explore the crazy, wacky, wonderful world of decoy carving. We sure are. And we have an extremely talented guest, Master Carver, Marty Hansen. How are you, Marty? Good. How are you? Doing great. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Been a full-time decoy maker all my life. Started when I was in my early teens. Worked at a gun club for years and ended up with one of my customers at the gun club wanting some decoys for a club that uh, they ran out in western Minnesota. And um, I ended up quitting the gun club and working for him. And it's this is where we this is where we are right now. So I think it was probably 14, 13 or 14 when I started that job for him. Worked for him for, oh, my God, 15, 20 years making decoys for him solely for him. Um, I didn't do shows or anything. I didn't even really know there was shows at that point. Um, that was still when I lived in Minnesota. So, uh, it's, it's kind of strange how it happened, but it's, it's turned into a full-time occupation since I was 13, 14 years old. So, so when did you decide that you wanted to turn your passion into an actual profession? Well, it's kind of a strange evolution because, you know, I started so early as a kid, you know, and living at home and whatnot. Um, you know, you don't have bills and you don't have, you know, the, the the responsibilities that you do if you're on your own. So, you know, it was kind of a hobby. It was a good way for me to make money at the time as a kid, be employed. Um, and then when I, you know, I, I tried, I went to college for a year and a half, two years and found out that wasn't for me and and uh, kept making decoys through that period. But it was, it wasn't like a, a, an actual day that I said this was, this was going to happen. It, was, it just happened over time. Um, at one point, I went to a gallery that was local in Edina, Minnesota, pretty famous gallery called Wild Wings. I'm sure you guys are all familiar with it. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if it's in business anymore or not, but there was a good, good, old guy, good old guy there named Jerry Eppel who ran that. I think Byron Webster and Jerry Eppel ran the Edina sh- shop at that time. And... I was living in South Minneapolis and uh, for the, at the time had a shop in my basement and I went and brought two decoys to Jerry and says, yeah, I'll take those for you, from you. So he, he bought them from me and uh, that's kind of where it started. It's like, well, that was easy. I made more today than I made, you know, all the last two weeks, you know, so it, it kind of, okay, now I'll find another gallery. Then I went to another gallery and, you know, they bought a couple. And then, and then I also had this, this gentleman named Bob Lindstrom, who was the guy that got me started, who had the duck club. So I was working for him still and then supplementing through these galleries and, and stuff like that. So I, I guess to answer your question, there, there wasn't really a day that I just said, oh, yeah, this is it. It was kind of a long term thing. Go ahead and kind of explain to our listeners what exactly contemporary decoys are. Well, contemporary is a, a strange word in the fact that, you know, every decoy maker was a contemporary at one point. You know, Elmer Kroll, uh, Lem Ward, um, you know, you name it, they were all contemporary. Contemporary to me just means in the modern day. So obviously right now we're all, you know, contemporary carvers, anybody that's making decoys today. Um, 
75 to 100 years from now, that won't be the case. We won't be contemporary carvers. I, I think contemporary basically means new to me. You know, um, it means in the moment, now modern, new. But, you know, I mean, you know, the, the Ward brothers carved for a long time and they were contemporary for, you know, 60 years. So I, I think it has to also do maybe when somebody passes that you're obviously not contemporary anymore. Right. <laughs> and then there's some that are, it's kind of like weird because like Schmiedlin, some people still consider him contemporary, but he's obviously not with us anymore. So I don't well, know. Well, you know what, Katie, that's a really good point because, you know, I still consider him contemporary, I guess, because we're still living in that time. You know, it's, it's a really hard thing to pin down. And that's a really good point to make, um, you know, because Jim's stuff is still contemporary. You know, um, Jim and I made decoys at the same time in our at same time period in time. And, you know, I, I, I agree with that. Yeah, you know? it's, it's a confusing definition. Right. It is. It is. But I think contemporary, the, the connotation right now for contemporary is people that are making decoys right now. You know, you could jump online or, or give a phone call and this guy's contemporary is making stuff right now. Yeah. You can get a commission if you wanted. Well, and I think also contemporary, what we kind of def- contemporary, when we do our show in Minnesota, we have our vintage classes and everything that's that's entered in these classes to be considered antique in our show has to be older than 50 years. Okay. If that helps, you know, so it's got to be 50 years or older. Because I mean, when I started, you know, uh, doing the shows, which was late, um, and, you know, and I'd made decoys for 10 or 15 years before I ever did a show. And the first shows were, you know, in the early 80s for me. I mean, Ben Schmidt just died 15 years ago. So Ben Schmidt's an old carver from Michigan. Um, you know, he did stuff in the early 1900s and, and later. Um, his decoys would have been contemporary because, you know, if it was 1980 for me, he did stuff in the, you know, 40s, 50s. Right. You know, so he would have been a contemporary, but now he's not. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so I, I guess it's a tough thing to put a pin on. Right. You know? Yeah. Katie and I were talking earlier about how the motion and movement of your decoys on the water are unlike any other. Explain to us your design process. How do you go from inspiration to actual working decoy? Because you hunt over your decoys. You don't make just art. Yeah, well, you know, I, I would say 20 to 25% of the birds that I make for anybody um, are being used. Um, they're, they're specialty type items for guys. You know, they're, you know, they're, they're not, they're not inexpensive and guys that just love the sport, you know, they've got their fancy double barrel or their, you know, fancy uh, duck club or all that stuff. They kind of like to, you know, keep with the tradition. Um, but as far as the inspiration comes, um, you know, putting a bunch of decoys on the water, it's neat to have everything in a different position if you can, you know, and there's two types of motion to me. It's, it's in motion and frozen motion. Frozen motion um, would be like people see pictures of a preening duck. Well, that's a frozen motion. A duck doesn't hold that position. That's a motion in time that's just shot at that one moment. Now a swimming pose, um, that shows motion, but it's constant because that duck's swimming forward. So I think I think you really have to be careful on, on what you make as a decoy maker whether it's a frozen in time motion or actual motion motion. Do you know, like at this point you've been carving so long, do you just know kind of how it's going to move on the water? 
And if so, when did you learn that? And like, how do you figure that out? I, I guess I, you know, you, you never know until you try, but you know, I've been making decoys for so long that you, you learn what looks good and what doesn't on the water. You know, one, one example I had, uh, is kind of funny when I, one of my earlier dogs, Cedar one, I call her, I've got a Cedar two now. That's why I call her Cedar one, obviously, but I, I made some swimming mallards and I still own them today where the head was real, real low on the water. And it was like stretched out swimming. Well, I'd shot in so many ducks with her um, in, in Illinois with a friend of mine, Jerry Cranwell. And uh, we had shot so many ducks that year. We, you know, traveled all over. My other friend, Marty Dahl and Jerry Cranwell, we traveled all over, hunted ducks. Well, she would see this stretched out neck mallard. And I always think it was the one trying to get out of the decoys after it had been crippled. And she would always go up to that duck and bump it. Cause she thought that was the one that was trying to swim out because the neck was so low, you know, <laughs> how, how, how you have a cripple, you know, and the, their neck will be on the water and they'll be moving out. So, I mean, I mean, that's how you, I guess those experiences make you change um, the motions and the, the things that you want on a decoy. I've also made decoys that uh, when I got done with them, they were like, it was like a frozen motion. They looked like they were dying on the water. They were terrible. <laughs> you know, the head's back and the bill's up. It doesn't look right. It looks like it, you know, it was sick to start with. So, so, so obviously you scratch that off the board, you know, but you learn, you learn over time, you know, and I've always hunted over my own things. So, um, and other, and other carvers, I've always liked to try to buy decoys from other makers too. So, you know, you can see what they do and, and that. So, but you learn over time. Yeah. That makes your story about cedar makes you laugh. Cause like you always see in, uh, the live decoys like they used to use. Yeah. And I was just like, what does the dog do in that situation? Like, does it know? <laughs> like I never got that. Well, I would, I would bet, I would bet it the first time. Yeah. The dog didn't probably know, but I bet you afterwards dogs are pretty smart. I bet you afterwards the dog would, you know, dog would, you know, just, just say, yeah, whatever, you know. Do you have a favorite species that you love to carve or do you just wake up that morning and it's like, hey, I'm going to do this or, hey, somebody commissioned me to do this. So canvasbacks are probably my favorite. Um, uh, you know, they're the one of the most desired ducks, I guess. You know, when you, you get a few of them in your boat after you've shot a few, it's 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 a nicer bag than, you know, having a gadwall and a, and a mallard to me. Um, but, you know, canvasbacks, I've, I've made probably more of than anything. And I would honestly say that when I get inspired to build six decoys or one decoy or whatever, I've got it in my head at that moment. That's, that's kind of my favorite duck at that moment. Um, the one I'm working on at the time, because that's where you're, you know, totally, you're totally into that. You're totally focused on that one thing. Blueing teal and loons are my least favorite. So. Oh, no blueing. I'm going to order some. <laughs> How long does it usually make take you to make one? Um, you can do a basic hunting decoy. I can I can probably do one of those in eight hours if pretty pretty easily. What about one that I want to sit on a shelf? Um, th those type of birds is which is you know eighty percent of my clientele right now. It's it's twenty hours and up. Oh wow! Um, and it really depends on how much detail somebody wants into something, how much paint they want on something. Um, what position um, they want, you know, the complication of positions changes price and cost just because it takes time. If somebody wants something super special, you know, then that's, that's time and extra. Um, 
a lot of it's involved in the design process. I don't use any patterns twice ever. I mean, I've got boxes of patterns that are stacked to the ceiling. I, I just, after I, I carve something, it's done. It's, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm over it, you know? So I've, I've got to make something new and try to make something better. No, that's with the exception of somebody orders six decoys or a dozen decoys. I'll make one or two patterns, um, and alter them and work off that same pattern so that whole group matches. So you're trying to make it hard for the collectors in 200 years to figure out which one yours are, huh? I hope not. I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) So that leads us to, are you still learning or do you feel like you have your craft mastered or do you have anything that actually challenges you? I'm always learning. Um, The minute you say that you've kind of mastered everything, it's kind of over for me. Um, I'm confident. I know I can make anything I want to make. Um, but I'm always learning. I mean, every day, even the littlest things, whether it's painting or carving, you're constantly learning. I mean, but there, there was a point, you know, in the last 10 years, I physically know that if, you know, I have to make a, a different piece of somebody needed a, a deer head carved or a, or a, I, I, I've been doing eagles or dead hanging, um, waterfall, you know, I'm not, Put, I'm not put off by any of that anymore. Where, whereas of 25 years ago, it would have been a you know head scratcher. Do you have any notable clientele that you sell to, or you can't, or can you dish on that? Yeah, no, I, I mean no, nobody, nobody that I, I you know feel free to mention. But um, you know, there's there's some significant people out in the West Coast, Microsoft guys, and um, there's a there's a club out in the West Coast, a really good friend of mine um, who passed away owns, and uh, his wife's running it now, and. And, uh, we have a lot of fun out there. Um, yeah, there's, you know, there's, there's some people, but not, you know, I, I guess nobody that I can just say, you know, when, when you buy something, it's kind of up to them to, up to them to say what they want to say about it. So what do you think sets your craftsmanships apart from others that are doing the same thing that you're doing right now? I guess there's several things maybe that would, you know, that, that might come up. I mean, I guess one of the, one of the big things that's maybe kind of unique is when I started, we didn't have internet, you know, we were on a party line in the rural parts of Minnesota, as far as a phone, you didn't have, um, really magazines even you didn't yet maybe had ducks unlimited as probably 90% of my reference when I started, you know, because there's a picture of ducks there. There was only a few guys that did books on carving or actual pictures of live birds. Um, you know, you had to go out and photograph stuff yourself and learn. And I guess being in that situation as a kid till the time I was probably 20, uh, 22 or so, you kind of lived in a vacuum. So you had to kind of develop your own style. Um, you, you couldn't look on the internet and see what somebody else is making and say, Oh, I like that and not necessarily copy it, but I'm going to, you know, take that aspect of this person's carving and use it. So I uh, kind of developed my own style and. To be honest with you, for the first 10 years, it never changed. You know, it's really, really unusual because it never changed. And it was, they were pretty crude. Every now and then I would try to do something a little bit better. But until I started, you know, going to the shows in Davenport in uh, the early 80s in Davenport, Iowa, and I competed in a few shows for eight, 10 years, that's when you really started to learn. But I, I guess that's one of the things is a lot of these guys now, nowadays don't have the time to develop their own style because there's just too much information out there, you know, and I think they get, I think they get sidetracked by trying to make one like this guy or make one like that guy and, and not be unique to themselves. Um, 
I guess the other part is uh, um, what sets what, what I would say sets you know what I do apart is everything is handmade and and handmade methods and materials. You know I don't use any power tools. I use a bandsaw. Um, after that, it's uh, spoke shaves, draw knives, all traditional tools, traditional paints. Um, I study and I deal in antique decoys also, and I also collect. So I'm, I'm able to handle some of the better, better things that were ever made in the last 150 years. And you learn from those things, you know, as far as construction and what works and what didn't, because they've, they've stood the test of time. And I guess being, being in it for 45 years, I guess, you know, as a full occupation, I guess that's, I guess that's something that maybe I would look at. Well, I would say another thing that's unique about you is, you know, a lot of carvers, at least they learn from somebody in the area or, you know, kind of got to have a mentorship and you didn't really have that when you came up, right? You kind of did it on your own. Yeah. It, well, it was kind of thrown on me. Um, actually, yes. Um, but I, I do have to give credit where credit's due. Um, I was so young that I didn't have a driver's license or a bandsaw. And the first few decoys that I made was, um, I had to go cut out at a local guy's um, place. He was an hour away and he was building this big part of this big rig for this gentleman, Bob Lindstrom. And, uh, he just, he was kind of just make one or two at a time and he wasn't getting the product done. So basically I kind of took his work at that point because I made probably 5,000 decoys for this guy at the end of our relationship. So I had a little bit of outside influence, but I mean, he was an hour and a half away. So it wasn't like he was standing right there, you know, and right. Bob Lindstrom, the, <clears throat> the, the owner of the club and the duck hunter had his idea what he wanted of a decoy. He didn't know how to make it. He didn't know how to paint. He knew nothing, but he said, no, I want this like this and this like, so I guess the first 10 years of my carving, I was just there to please his preferences, what, what he wanted. I was just there to, you know, fulfill what he wanted with, with these things. Um, I know you've told this story before, but it's such a good story. So can you tell us uh, the story about how, uh, when Bob Lindstrom gave you those, your first job? Yeah, he, um, I was working at the gun club since I was probably 12, 13 years old, Minneapolis gun club. It's located in Prior Lake. It's a pretty famous gun club in the state of Minnesota. And, you know, it, it was a great job and I, I enjoyed being out there. I shot registered trap for years as a junior and um, knew all the people, traveled with a lot of the people, shooting events and whatnot. And they had a league night at the duck tower, which I always liked working was the duck tower because it was a different group of guys that shot that versus trapper skeet. So Bob and in his group, they're all, they were all Harley guys. They all were big bikers, you know I mean? Like big bikers back in the late seventies, early eighties were different bikers now. You know, they weren't the, they weren't the lawyer types and the, these guys were, these guys were real bikers. And he, uh, he says, you want to quit working here? Because he, he'd always notice on my sketch pads, I'd be drawing like bluebill heads and flying ducks on his score sheet. And he says, can you think you can carve a decoy? I says, yeah, I, I have been carving a couple of decoys. You know, I'd probably made eight or nine things in my life previous to that. He says, all right. He says, well, I says, well, I don't have any saw or anything. I, I, I don't have any, you know, I'm not living at my dad's house. I don't really have a workshop. The workshop was my bedroom. So a week later with it, he didn't say a word. He had a full semi deliver a truckload of red cedar, four by four by 10 red cedar and a brand new bandsaw on the box dropped right off in the middle of the driveway of, of the house, right behind my dad's car. 
What did your parents say? Oh, right behind my dad's car. My dad was a teacher in Minneapolis and he had to get to work and he couldn't get his car out because <laughs> there was a, there was, I mean, a ton of wood. I mean, a semi load of wood, not, <laughs> not, you know, 10 sticks. I'm talking, you know, a lot. And, uh, oh, he was mad, but he was mad, but he wasn't, you know, but it was, it was, yeah, it wasn't put in the right spot of the driveway. That's for sure. <laughs> so that's how it started. Yeah. That's how it started. You know, put that saw together and dad said I could have the basement or the garage and put all that stuff together. And even at one point, my dad was, uh, was cutting stuff out for me because I, you know, it's had to turn out so many things. He'd, he'd spend two, three hours in the saw cutting out and then I'd, I'd finish them, carve them. You still have one, right? Or one of the early ones. Yeah, we've got several, actually. I've got several. And I mean, I, they, they trade on the internet and uh, all over the place. I see them all the time. You know, they, back then I was getting $25, $30 a piece for them. And they sell down for two to $300, you know, kind of makes me cringe because I look at them and just go, Oh my God, those are bad. You know, but they weren't, they weren't made for <clears throat> the collector shelf. You know, they were made to hunt over. I mean, he'd set out five to 600 decoys at a time. But you were also, you know, 14, 15 years <laughs> old. I mean, I painted when I was 14 and 15 years old. My parents have it hanging on their walls. I don't want to look at it, but they love it. <laughs> I, I know. I know. Yeah, it's all it's all in the eye, I guess. Yeah, it's all which, however which way you look at it. You know, these guys, they just love those ducks, you know, because they're, they're more reasonable. And, you know, I made them when I was in my teens, the collectors that got them, and they think they're great. And I just look at them and just go, oh, my God. You know, I just I wish all of these could just go away. But I, I also think it. I also think it helps um, new collectors get into something at entry level and start, and then maybe want something better or want to see the progression of a carver. Um, so I think that's kind of cool too. So speaking of that, where do you see the future of traditional decoy carving go from here? Where do you see the, and also where do you see the future of Hanson decoys? As far as traditional decoy making, I, you know, I think it's, it's getting astray a little bit just due to a lot of the modern methods that people are, you know, when, when you say traditional, I mean, I'm talking about hand tools, oil paints, um, traditional methods, traditional, you know, not using a lot of filler in these decoys. You know, if you've, if you've got a, a flaw in a, in a decoy, you know, it's just as easy to make a wood patch than it is to put filler in it and have the filler fall out in two years after it's gotten wet a couple of times. So I guess traditional, I mean, I'm real stringent on the word tr traditional to me. I mean, it's, it's a real fine direct line. Um, I guess handling old decoys and, and collecting old decoys really helps the tradition aspect of it and maintaining that, you know, there's only a handful of makers, um, far as I'm concerned that are, they're doing it traditionally, you know, and as long as they can keep showing people how to do it. And it, it's real, it, it's real tough because you don't, you know, a lot of these guys don't want to share things either, you know, so it's, it's tough to pass on a tradition when you're doing this for a living, you know, um, it's, it's a hard thing to do, but I think that's the future needs to know how to use these tools, you know, um, you know, my friend Sean Sutton is making spoke shades now. So, I mean, he's taken it past their tradition to making the tools that do the, you know, traditional decoys, which I think is cool. Yeah. Um, so the future is fun, is great, you know, with rising prices of these old decoys that are, that are getting higher and higher and out of reach for people. Um, I'm finding the new customers, the younger generation, such as yourselves, they don't like, they don't like the rough old worn stuff anymore. They like new, 
I don't know if it's that. It's just that I can't afford it. We can't afford the old stuff. <laughs> well, yes, you can. Yeah, you can. You can start somewhere. But I mean, I think I think a lot of it is is you buy from a, a contemporary maker. You you know what you're going to get. You know it's not fake. You know who made it. You can talk to the person. And I think it's a different experience than buying a you know a, a thousand dollar old decoy that's went through thirty five hands. It's cool, but you know you really don't have any closeness to it. Right. You know, other than the the aesthetic value that you see at at the, at the time. You mentioned a minute ago um, your friendship with other carvers. Um, how does I know how does that influence their work? Influence your work and and does it? It it does in a in a in a, in a very slight way. You know, there's there's lots of things that it might be a tone of color of paint, or it might be a, 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 an angle of tail set or something. Um, I really kind of believe to that every carver should do his own thing and not work off somebody else's patterns um, and be individuals. You know, when when I used to judge, you know, in Sacramento at, at all the other shows, and I'm still, you know, out in Washington. The toughest thing is is there's ten bluebills in a in a uh, judging judging tank you, you can tell the, the pattern that they use it's all the same pattern you know they're all those ducks look the same there's no individuality and i tend to lean towards the individuality versus the you know carve for a for a specific judge so as far as influences go i think influences can be great and i think they can hurt you you know yeah. um i see a lot of a lot of guys making stuff by other makers make making things very similar to what other makers are making because they have their distinct style and i think come on you know it might be fun to try to do it you know do it once but you, know, you really need to do your own thing and, and i'm guilty of it i i make some old old looking birds too you know based off the old things but i generally do that for a breakaway from what i do it's it's fun to do the patterns you know the easiest day i have in the shop is making an an old time uh, swan or shorebird because the pattern's already done for you. The idea is already there. You just got to mimic it. It's it's a different it's a different work experience at that point when you're 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 making some something to emulate another thing versus creating your own design and your own pattern and working that through to the end. I'm obviously a female, who, and with females, you often get a little bit of drama. So I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, <laughs> have you ever had anyone? Make a decoy and try to pawn it off as one of yours. I've had a couple instances where the initials were MH on the bottom of a decoy, and they were sold as as mine. Yes, but um, it, you know, I don't think it was intentional. I think, well, oh, the initials are there. You know, it must be him. And you know, and the seller usually an auction house or or a dealer. Um, just well, just assume that. You know, and I've had to tell you know a lot of people I never made that. You know, I think every, you know, I know a couple of friends of mine, uh, decoy makers that are well known. I, I know they've had that issue. Um, I've had people copy designs, which which is kind of flattering at one point, but then it's not. You know, it kind of makes you mad. Can you like copyright that your pattern? How does that work? For I don't think you, no, I don't think you can because everything's original. You know, I don't think you can. It's, uh, you know, I mean, it's a age old deal, you know, I mean, look at some of the old makers, some of them, you can't tell them apart half the time, you know, so, mm-hmm. right. I mean, it just goes with the deal, you know, I, I, I would hope the general public and the, the, the decoy buying market would know who designed that first, you know, I just hope they would understand who made it first. And I think it maybe does the carver that emulated the bird less benefit than, than good, 
On the subject of that, tell our listeners how we can go about purchasing one of your decoys. Um, basically, I'm online on Facebook quite a bit. So, you know, I've, I've got a lot of connections through that, which is, you know, changing times, obviously. Didn't used to have that, you know, t- 10 years ago. Um, back in 08, 2000 to 2008, I had a website, which worked good until, until everything crashed in 08. And then I kind of shut that website down. Um, right now, basically, I'm on a commission base, basis. Um, I do four shows a year, four or five shows a year. I try to hold inventory for those shows that, that haven't been uh, inventory that hasn't been spoken for previously. I don't like going to a show and, you know, bringing 10 things that are already spoken to spoken for and, you know, having people come up, well, I'll take that. Well, no, it's sold. It's sold. You know, that's just not the way I, I try to have, you know, four to 10 things available for purchase at a show that, that weren't commissioned by people. So that's one way of doing it. Um, the other ways, give me a call at, at, at the house or at the shop here. Um, um, the other way is what we were just talking about with those old ducks uh, that I made is secondary market. You know, there's a lot of secondary market birds um, I, I see that, that come up, you know, people, you know, um, change directions or they pass away or whatever. And uh, I know uh, uh, John Dieter and Gary Guyette have quite a few coming up in the next auction from a, a gentleman that's passed. So um, that's another one. You know, but, but you're buying from the, you know, you're buying from the second, third owner, you know, sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's bad. You know, sometimes you can get a real good deal on something and sometimes you're going to, you know, every time it changes hands, it's going to increase in cost. Best way, best way. If you're interested, just give me a holler here at the shop. That's the best way. And we put you on the list and we do what we can. So it is harvest time down here in Memphis. And when the crop comes in, I'm going to beg my dad and my husband. If all I can right. All right. You'll be first on the list. <laughs> awesome. And I'm going to order a blue wing. <laughs> it won't even be blue wing season. No moons. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you, Marty, for coming on the show and talking to us today. You bet. Great talking to you ladies. Special thanks to our guest, Marty Hanson of Hanson Decoys. I want to thank my co-host, Katie Burke, for always making sure that I don't act a fool. Uh, And special thanks to our producer, Clay Baird, for knocking every single show out. And most importantly, thanks to all of you for supporting Wetlands Conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the ducks.